again come to the book of Zechariah. And again, we're just doing an overview of these minor prophets. And they are not minor because they're unimportant. They are minor because of the size of the book in comparison to the other uh, prophets that wrote Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're bigger books. So they're not less important. And as we see Zechariah writing and ministering in this time that follows the return from exile, this is a, a post-exilic prophet, meaning after 70 years that the children of Israel were in captivity in Babylon, there was a remnant that came back, and uh, they were to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital, and it's kind of a fresh start. It's kind of a second exodus. But we find things, uh, sadly, um, like all of us sometimes, we're prone to wander and get off target. And they started the temple, but they did not remain faithful. There was opposition, and uh, they were more concerned about their own houses. And so Zechariah is one who's come alongside of them to exhort them. And also there was sin, so they are doing the role of a prophet to instruct them, to teach them. But one of the things that we see in these prophets, and particularly in Zechariah, is that they also, in the midst of what was a difficult time for these people, they've returned home, their land had been devastated, it's in ruins, and uh, there was opposition, and at a time like that, you need hope. And we find the prophets uh, giving hope to the people, even as they correct them and exhort them, and rebuke them, they also want to encourage them, and they want to give them hope. And this is a theme that we find throughout the Bible. God wants us to be people who are marked by hope, no matter how hard the day may be, the times in which we live. God's people should be marked and characterized by hope. We just sang about strength for today, bright hope, for tomorrow. As believers, we have been given hope, a reason for hope in this fallen and broken world. This hope is found in Jesus Christ. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, is, who has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. This is one of the things that Christ has won for his people, a living hope sustaining hope. Again, in the face of trials and difficulties, as these people to whom Peter was writing, that they would have hope. And the Bible is full of promises that give us a reason for hope. We have been called in hope. We have Christ in us, who is the hope of glory. We as believers are looking for the return of Christ, the blessed And the scriptures have been given to us that we might have hope. And what a wonderful gift. What a wonderful treasure that God has given to us. And we have reason to be people who are characterized by hope. And so Zechariah, as he's writing this, it's no surprise to us. It's going to speak about hope as this book is going to be saturated with passages that are looking forward to the coming of the promised Messiah. And this is a means of giving hope to the people of God because hope is tied inseparably to Christ. 
our prophet, our priest, and our king. And so as we look at this this morning, we're going to look at mostly the second half of Zechariah and look at some of these passages that foretell the coming of the Messiah and some of the things about him. And what we see here is Zechariah, like many of the Old Testament prophets, were speaking and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And we have prophecies, numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that are telling us of the one who is to come. It's anticipation and longing for this great figure that is presented to us in the old scriptures. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. There's one who will come from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be a great deliverer, a great mighty savior. And then this snowball kind of just keeps getting bigger and bigger as we go through the Old Testament as more and more prophecies are added uh, to help us to see a little bit of the picture of the one who is coming. But what might seem to be a strange combination to us is as we look at those prophecies, we find that many of them are prophecies that speak about great glory. Great glory. He's going to be a great king and ruler. But also there are prophecies that have to do with suffering. He is going to suffer greatly. And so we see these prophecies intermingled in the Old Testament. And this was something that was hard for them to understand, particularly when Christ came. If you remember in Luke 24, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus, they had been in Jerusalem, Christ had been crucified, and their hopes have been dashed. They're walking home, and here is the risen Christ who comes alongside of them and says, why are you so depressed? Well, the one we were hoping for, we we thought he was the Messiah, but look what happened to him. He, he was crucified and he died. And Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith, did you not know that he must first suffer and then enter into his glory? And then Jesus, it says, he opened up the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and revealed to him these things. What a, what a lesson that must have been. What a blessing to hear those words from Jesus. And so this was confusing. A suffering Messiah, a glorious reigning Messiah, but that's indeed what we find in the Old Testament. And what we find in Zechariah is some very specific details about this Messiah. Now, remember, he's writing over 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. All right, that's a long time. That's older than our country. And here is uh, these prophecies that are being made, and they are to be fulfilled. There are 61 major prophecies pertaining to the life of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And uh, these prophecies and many others that allude to the coming of the Messiah show us something of the nature of Scripture. This is a divine book. Here are men that are writing centuries before the coming of Christ and giving very specific details, especially when you think about the cross. There are, I think, over 20 prophecies that relate to a 24-hour period in the life of Christ at the time of the cross. And they, they were written centuries before. 
and again, some of these in great detail, that they will cast lots for his garments. We'll see several here in Zechariah. And when you think about that, what is the chances of those prophecies just happening to be fulfilled in one person? Is that just going to happen by chance? Well, there was a man who was a mathematician. His name is Peter Stoner years ago. Uh, he was a press professor of mathematics, and he came up with a, a study that he did. What would be the probability of one man or eight prophecies being made about Jesus? What would be the probability that they would just coincidentally come to pass in one man? And uh, he came up with this figure. Just for eight of the prophecies, it would be the, just the, the chance of this just happening would be one in 10 to the 17th power. And that's, uh, that's uh, 100,000 trillion, kind of like our national debt. <laughs> We're headed that way. But he used this illustration. That number is so big, I don't, I don't even understand it. But he used an illustration that helps me. He said, if you took that many silver dollars, 100,000 trillion silver dollars, you could cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Now, we all know that Texas is a big state, right? So you cover the state of Texas with that many silver dollars, and then you take one silver dollar, you put a big X on it, and throw it out in the state of Texas somewhere, mix it up amongst the bunch. What's the chances that one man would just happen to fulfill those eight prophecies just by chance. Well, it would be like out of the state of Texas going out there just picking up one of those silver dollars and being the right one. Well, that's the odds of it just happening. So not only do we see the, the nature of the Bible, that it indeed is the, God, the inspired word of God, but we see the divine sovereignty of God that he foretold that all of these things are going to happen, and they happen down to the detail. Christ fulfilled these many prophecies, or will yet fulfill them. And so we see the wonder of the scriptures, we see the wonder of God's sovereignty, and we see that God is the God of history. He's carrying out his purpose. And as we think about that, I thought of what Jesus said to his disciples as he was speaking to them and teaching them, he said this, blessed are your eyes. He could say this to us today as well. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not and do not hear it. If we are a believer today and God has opened our eyes, we have been able to see the fulfillment of all of these prophecies in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Blessed are you. You have seen these things by faith through the Word of God, and you've heard these things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great teacher. Abraham, two thousand years before Christ. He rejoiced, he rejoiced in the coming of this Messiah that was promised. 
He saw it and he was glad that God would fulfill this. Well, we want to look at the sufferings, first of all, of the coming Messiah. And we see three prophecies that we want to look at here. <coughs> Excuse me, the first one is in chapter 11. And we see that he will be disesteemed and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I think we all know the story, don't we, of Judas. Well, here is the Lord calling Zechariah to be as a prophet and to speak to the people and to speak hard things to them. But what we find in verse um, 12, we're not, we're not going to have time to develop the context of all of these, but just look at the primary uh, verse. And here is Zechariah who is speaking. I, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, he's the prophet, he's speaking to the people, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the the lordly price at which I was priced. Um, By which I I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, what we find in the New Testament is that the prophets, or excuse me, the gospel writers and are going to apply this to Jesus. This was something that was true of Zechariah. He was not esteemed. They only valued him at the price of 30 pieces of silver, which was not much. It was the price of a slave. And so this was their estimation of Zechariah. They had no value. They, they, they did not esteem him. And when we come to the New Testament, we find this to be true of the Savior. And we, we read the words of Isaiah 53 that we're familiar with. He was despised and rejected of man. He was not esteemed. And here is Judas, who is in the upper room with Jesus. And you remember that he leaves and he goes and meets with the religious leaders and strikes a bargain with them. I will hand him over to you. For 30 pieces of silver. To Peter, or excuse me, to Judas, he was of little worth. He would rather get 30 pieces of silver, which wasn't much, but he did not esteem Christ. He was willing to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 27, as he goes uh, and he does this, and then he sees that Jesus is condemned and crucified. Um, is going to be crucified, he returns and he throws back the money. He said, I don't want it. And it says, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, but also the prophet Zechariah. And they they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. And so what we find is a fulfillment of scripture. Matthew says, this is what Jeremiah, this is what Zechariah was saying would happen to the Messiah. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He was of little worth, of no interest. He was disesteemed. And so here is this fulfillment that is found in Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you this morning, of what worth 
is Jesus to you? Is he somebody we just hear about, preached about? Do you esteem Christ? Do you see him as the pearl of great price that Jesus said a man will sell everything that he has in order to have that pearl? It is the pearl of great price. He is the pearl of great price. Do you value Christ? Do you esteem him above everything else? Maybe as you sit here today, as you look into your heart, oh, you hear about him, you're not going to you know, say anything bad about him, but you really don't esteem him. Maybe like Judas, you would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, 38 and 39, whoever does not take his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, he will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. There's a call to come to Christ, to surrender the whole of our life, to give up our own agenda, our own life, and and receive Christ, who is the pearl of great price. And the one who does this, he dies to himself, he denies himself. He's the one that gains life, ultimately. You see, secondly, he will be uh, a stricken shepherd, And sheep will be scattered. Chapter 13, if you'll turn over there. Chapter 13 and verse 7. Again, we're not going to develop the context. But here's this amazing statement. This is Jehovah himself speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. All right? I think we could see here the the Trinity. Here is the Father speaking and his companion that is next to him. And it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man or my companion who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is the Lord speaking, Lord of hosts. And what does it say? Strike the shepherd That's an amazing statement. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So here's this statement about this coming Messiah, who is a shepherd who is going to be stricken. He will be stricken. Amazingly enough, it is the Lord who is speaking and says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, my companion." Strike him, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. But one of the things that happens when the shepherd is struck with this piercing blow is that it says the sheep are going to be scattered. And what do we find as we come to the New Testament? We find both Matthew and Mark applying this to Jesus Christ. 
And when they were in the upper room, just before Jesus is to be crucified, they, it says they sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said this to his disciples. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, Zechariah said this, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that's exactly what we find, don't we, at the cross, that as Jesus is crucified, we find the sheep are scattered. And Peter is like, Lord, that's not going to happen to me. I'll never deny you. No, before the night's out, Peter, you're going to deny, deny me three times. But here is, again, a fulfillment of what had been said by Zechariah over 500 years earlier. And what is striking to us is that this is the Lord who speaks here. It is the Lord who says, strike the shepherd, the one who is his companion. We see this also in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Amazing verse, the suffering Messiah. We read that it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him, to put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. What do we read in the New Testament? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that was through his offering up his life upon the cross. It was the divine stroke of justice whereby God judged our sin, the sin of the believer, in the person of Christ. So that he bore the penalty that was due to us. He bore the wrath of God in the place of the believer, the one who belongs to Christ. But it was the deepest stroke that, that hit him. It wasn't the beatings on his back. It wasn't um, the spitting in his face and all the various things that happened to him physically, but it was what his father did. He struck his own son as he was made a propitiation for our sins. And Jesus Christ willingly endured that. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Notice in chapter 12 and verse 10, the Lord says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him, him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There is going to be this great wailing, weeping, as if someone had lost their only son. And what is this wailing, what is this weeping about? It is coming to an understanding that the one whom they had pierced was, the, was none other than the Messiah himself. And so here's, a, again, a very explicit text that speaks about the one who is coming is going to be pierced. But notice here, it is spe speaking of God, of Yahweh, that they have pierced me, their God. They have grieved God and, as it were, metaphorically pierced their God. But 
what we find when we get to the New Testament, it's used in a literal way of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he would be pierced. And we find this in John 19. Remember the Roman soldier comes and he, he thrusts a spear into the side of Jesus Christ. And so we see him being pierced. He's pierced with nails. And again, John tells us that this took place, that they will look on him whom they have pierced. It is God who awakens his sword in Matthew, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 7. And here it is, the people who have pierced him. So this is an amazing thing, isn't it? It is God who awakes his sword and strikes the shepherd, but it is also they who pierced him. Now, which of those is true? Who really killed Jesus? Was it men or was it God? And the answer is yes. It was both. Men out of the wickedness of their own hearts pierced Christ. They did not esteem him. They saw him as a criminal. And they didn't want to have anything to do with him. But in the very act of doing those things, it was God who over, sovereignly over these events is bringing about the salvation of his people as Christ is made to be sin for them. So when does this come about? When they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they are going to mourn. I think it happens in Acts 2 is where we begin to see this to take place. This is the time when God pours out his spirit on his people at Pentecost. Peter gets up to preach in Jerusalem, and he says very strongly that you are the ones who have crucified the Lord of glory. You with lawless men have done this. And the spirit comes, and there are those who, 3,000, who repent of their sins and put their trust in this risen Savior. And that's really the story of what happens in the lives of believers. Everyone comes to see that this one who has been pierced, this one who has been crucified, that's where my hope is. And it was my sins as well that put him on the cross. My sins. He died for my sins. And as our eyes are opened, we come to recognize that and we repent of our sins and we put our trust in Christ, who is our only hope. And I wonder today, have you done that? Have you come to that place to see that your sins deserve the the wrath and the judgment of God? And have you been made to see that this one who died, died in the place of guilty sinners so that they could be forgiven and cleansed and made new? And so call the gospel is look to the crucified, risen Savior. He is the Savior of of sinners. There's no other name given under all of heaven whereby you can be saved but the cross. Now Paul tells us that the preaching of Christ crucified it's not a popular message. You tell me first of all that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Well I'm not so sure about that. Well the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God and your only hope is outside of you. You can't fix your problem. Your only hope is somebody that was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's who you have to trust. That's the one you need to repent and believe in. It's Jesus Christ. 
crucified on a tree? Are you kidding? And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross, it's to, it's to many, it's just foolishness. To others, it's a stumbling block. <laughs> I'd never put my faith in a man crucified on a tree. There's no other name given under heaven whereby you can be saved. And in the gospel, when God opens our eyes, we see that it was my sin that he was dying there for. It wasn't anything that he had done. God was judging him in the place of the guilty sinner. And this is the glory and the beauty of the, and the wonder of the cross, that God redeems and saves sinners by the work of Christ, the one who was pierced. And so here is, again, the glory of God's grace and his mercy. Now, I think this is what happens throughout church history is that people come to see this, see the glory of Christ crucified. And that's what Paul says. My message is Christ crucified. That's that's the message I have. I don't have anything else. Christ and him crucified. And that's where hope is found. It's found in him. And then I think in the last day, Revelation speaks about a day that when Christ comes, they will look upon the one who was pierced. Revelation 1.7. Thirdly, this morning, so we see these passages that talk about his suffering, and then there are several that speak about his glory. I'm not going to take the time to develop the first one. He is a glorious priest and king. And what we find is the merging together of these two offices, that the one who is... Um, The high priest, Joshua, has been given a golden crown, and he is referred to as the branch. And there's the merging together of the office of priest and king in this one that is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is going to be a great king. Now look at Zechariah 9. This is probably the most familiar passage to us, um, probably from the book of Zechariah that reminds us that Jesus Christ indeed is a king. He is a great king. And notice these words that are familiar to us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and having salvation. Uh, And having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the full of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be, notice this, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So here is his promise of a coming king. Well, he's also a priest, but he's also a king. He will rule and he will reign forever. And how is he described? Very beautifully He is described as one who is, he is just. He is just. It's what you need in a king and a ruler, isn't it? One who is just. He's endowed with salvation. Everything that we need. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save us from our sins. He is also humble. We don't see that many public figures, do we? He's just. He's humble. He delivers. He is also one who will cut off his enemies and our enemies, and he is going to rule and reign 
forever and ever. Here's this hope that is being painted for us by Zechariah. This is the one that we're longing for. Hang in there. He's going to come. He will deliver his people. And of course, we know in the New Testament, as we read in the Gospels, Mark 11 records this. What happens on Palm Sunday? It is Jesus who comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, an unbroken donkey. And it is there that the people cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He's here. King's here. And this prophecy is fulfilled as the gospel writers inform us. What a glorious king he is, unlike any other king. And this king is the one who says, come unto me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly. And he is the one who leads his people, who is a gracious, humble, sovereign king. And this is who we belong to if we belong to him. And then, if you will, turn over to another passage. We already sang about this in chapter 13 and verse 1. I love this imagery that is given here. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Here's a fountain that is opened up. What a beautiful picture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it talks about many of the offerings that were offered up for someone that was ceremonially defiled. They couldn't go to the temple because they were defiled, one of them being by being a leper. But if they were cured, if they were healed of their leprosy, there was an offering that would be offered up and running water would be poured over the sacrifice as it was cleaned and prepared uh, to be offered up. And this imagery of water is this idea of cleansing. There is this cleansing that takes place. How, how we enjoy a nice shower. After we've been working in the yard down in Mexico, we got quite dirty and had cement all over us. And uh, it was nice to go get a shower. And here's this picture of this fountain that is opened up. It is abundant. And there is cleansing. Cleansing for sin, for uncleanness, for our guilt, for our defilement. And it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we have come to know and experience if we are in Christ. My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. There's a fountain that has been opened up to us, this great fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stain. What an amazing thing. You can't clean yourself up, but Jesus can. And it's found in his cross, his blood that was shed. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Thief taking his last breath looks over to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus says to this man that looks upon him, today you will be with me in paradise. Here is this fountain that spills over this man, washes him clean, and today you will be with me in paradise. This is where cleansing is found. This is where hope that is found. The one who is pierced, the one who is disesteemed, this one who was crucified on a tree. The Bible says, look to him all the ends of the earth and be saved. Look to Christ. Lastly, we see that there is the promise of everlasting righteousness. I'll just read verse 9 of chapter 14. And the Lord will be a king over all the earth. Right? Here's, Here's our hope. The Lord is going to reign and rule. Christ will rule and reign. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That draws us back to Deuteronomy 6. The name of the Lord our God, he he is one Lord. And he will be the only, he's the only true and living God. And it will be very clear in that day. The rest of this book goes on to speak about the holiness that will depict uh, the coming of that day when Christ will come. Everything associated with it will be holy unto the Lord, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. One day, all things new. Hang on to Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you willingly laid down your life as the good shepherd. You willingly laid down your life for your sheep. We thank you, our Father, that it pleased you. It's hard for us to comprehend that. But it pleased you to crush him instead of us. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We bless you and we thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for this fountain that is opened up to us. Not just in the day in which we were saved and came to faith, but every day since. Out of the fullness of Christ and this fountain, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. And we thank you. If there is one here that is not a lover and a follower of Christ, they've never bowed the knee to him, they've never owned him as their own savior, turned their life over to him, I pray that today that they might cast their hope, their confidence in Christ, a savior slain for sinners, and that they will call upon him. Take your word and seal it to our hearts, we pray. This in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. As we close this morning, I invite you to take your hymn book.